What's up, Florida State sports fans? Kurt Weiler here with Carter Carls for another episode of the No Sports Podcast. A uh, a, a bit of an inauspicious start here, Carter. A pretty weird uh, last week in Florida State sports. I mean, after the spring game, obviously, the uh, Amarius Moon situation started. It uh, it seemed really promising for Florida State. And then out of nowhere, now he's uh, he's going back to Georgia and what seemed like would have been a a huge addition to uh, to the Florida State 2022 class is uh, is is no more, unfortunately, for uh, the Seminoles. Yeah, it's it's a tough tough loss for Florida State. Uh, I actually went back and watched. Uh, I think I'm a lunatic that I did this, but I went back and watched all 121 snaps uh, from his true freshman year at at Georgia, all at right tackle. Watch his junior highlights, senior highlights. Just just seemed like the guy that Florida State really needed. Um, he he could have played left tackle. He put, could have played right tackle. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that he could be a fir- future first round draft pick. Uh, and I don't. I didn't think that was crazy. He he certainly had the look of it at six foot seven, three thirty. Um, and and the big thing was like Florida State just didn't really have any other linemen like him. Like he's just a monster with his seven foot one wingspan, his large hands, his build, and and he really carried his weight well. Um, he had some nice bend in his knees. He, you know, people weren't just running around this guy. So uh, this was the, exactly the kind of guy that Florida State really needed, and and to not have him was was uh, was, was a tough miss. Yeah, it's unfortunate that you. Uh... You grinded the tape. I had a couple stories ready to go. I know we weren't alone in that. There were, I mean, there was confidence from Florida State, and, and I know a number of number of other outlets kind of had had similar information of just hearing how how good things were. I mean, it was another example of Florida State striking extremely fast in in the portal. I mean, in his high school recruitment, Amarius Mims talked a good bit about uh, FSU offensive coordinator and offensive line coach Alex Atkins and how good a relationship he had with him. And really, his relationship with Atkins was so good that Florida State was in a recruitment for a five-star consensus top 15 type recruit that it really shouldn't have been. Like, it was in there with, like, the big boys, with the Georgia, with the Alabama, with the uh, Ohio States of the world because of Atkins and the job he did building that relationship. And so uh, the interesting thing, it feels like in today's college football, you're obviously recruiting for the the initial recruitment, but it seems more and more too, the, there's a bit of maintaining that relationship to recruit for a potential second recruitment out of the transfer portal, and that's what we saw here. After Mims spent only a year at Georgia, I think he was lining up, and I would say still lining up to probably be Georgia's third offensive tackle, kind of the swing guy, the odd man out. And I think he was felt he was ready to play, and that I think led to the move. I know he kind of had left the team before the end of spring practice, didn't play in their spring game. And Florida State, I mean, once again, as, as we've kind of heard time and time again from these transfers, they struck fast, and they they got the what, what ended up being the only visit. And I know, obviously, at the time, the first visit, they got him on campus Wednesday night. He uh, w- was supposed to stay through later in the day Friday, ended up leaving earlier in the day, uh, a pretty tragic situation. A, a family friend uh, of, of his uh, passed away in a, in a car accident, and... Uh, it was, I mean, it, it led to an abrupt ending to the visit earlier than, uh, earlier than expected, which was, uh, it, 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 the, the truth is though, I mean, it, it, 
it's unfortunate on on many fronts. Obviously, it's unfortunate for him. It's unfortunate. I mean, for FSU, from a standpoint of it, it it, it ended abruptly. It, it there was the. It didn't go to its its full conclusion. I think there was definitely a thought if it if he had finished out the day, he may have committed that day. So it it uh it changed things, and all in all, it's another uh, crazy FSU recruitment. I would say there've been a, a few too many of those lately for the fan base and their uh, blood pressures. Yeah, I I think uh, it, we we may never know the the full truth behind like uh, whether. Uh, you know, because obviously over the next few days, as he was mourning the loss, he was also having to decide where to go. You know, there was a deadline at the beginning of May for transfers on, you know, making this decision or else they wouldn't be able to be eligible to play next uh, this this coming season. So we had to make a decision, which uh, felt pretty, pretty crummy. I mean, I, I felt bad for the kid having to make one of the biggest decisions of his life after going through something like that. Um, and we'll never know what went into it. Maybe it was just a matter of like, hey, man, I want to stay close to home after after this happened. Maybe uh, Georgia came by with an IL deal. I mean, we, we, we really don't know what what happened there. But, uh, you know, you, you wish that kid the best after everything that happened. And uh, hopefully uh, he'll, he'll be able to, to push through it. Uh, as far as... Uh, how it affects Florida State. I mean, obviously, they're going to uh, need to look at some options um, in the transfer portal. Uh, losing Darius Washington and, and Lloyd Willis this spring certainly put them at a disadvantage and, and showed uh, showed that their depth isn't where it should be on the offensive line. Um, and as far as just circling back on the Mims thing, I think there was there's so much confusion out there because they're – there, I think that when when it comes to recruiting uh, and, and transfers, uh, there's a confusion on like, do they sign? What's a commitment? All that. I've always lived by the, like, uh, the the uh, under the assumption, or I've lived by the belief that like, you're not verbally committed to a place unless you've announced it publicly, and so when this kid was publicly denying a report that he was committed or or was going to sign or whatever the wordage was like that was a pretty good indication like hey this kid isn't verbally committed and then you know we were hearing from people like yeah this kid has not told anyone uh this and with recruiting you know you you can't go based off an nil deal or what a parent tells you or whatever. Like if a kid is not verbally committed, like he's not verbally committed. That's just as simple as it is. Now you could say, Oh, he's, he's signed, um, an NIL deal. And it gives us a strong indication that potentially he might land at Florida state. Uh, but, but that's not what happened here. And so I think it was kind of a messy recruitment where there was a lot of confusion from the fan base, uh, the media, like every outlet, didn't really know how to report it because there was some conflicting reports and the, the kid was saying something uh, that that was going against the report. So um, it, it's kind of good that it's over, I guess, because I, th- I think it was so much unnecessary drama, um, honestly. And uh, it kind of just shows you how recruiting is just just a wild thing. And I, I, I tweeted about this like, 
for Marius Mims and Travis Hunter to happen in the same off season, it's just it, uh, that that is just brutal, man. I mean that you would hope that those two things don't happen within five years of each other, but to happen in the same off season is tough. But uh, ultimately, you know, Florida State valuation period starts uh, this week, so they're going to be back on the trail, and we'll hope to uh, push this past them. Yeah, you say it's messy, and I do think that's a a good word for how this whole situation played out in terms of how it played out publicly. I think it bears mentioning, though, that's not at all a word I would use to describe how FSU's coaches and staff handled the process. Yeah, I think FSU kind of nailed this, getting them on campus so fast, striking fast. It it seemed that they had done enough to convince him where he wasn't planning on going to Miami, which was, I know, a a proposed landing spot or a place, a proposed place he may visit, kind of the other school that was seen as the immediate front runner when when he entered the portal. So I, I, I think they did a lot of things right. It kind of makes it, I think, all the worse. I think it also bears mentioning the, the, what was proven to be an incorrect report uh, by Warchant Wednesday night, it was unfortunate on multiple fronts. I don't think it had any bearing on the recruitment. I think any notion, I saw some people suggesting that, that they think that negatively impacted things. I think that's, I don't think that's correct. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's just, I think uh, what stinks is we we never got to interview the kids so i mean i think it would have helped to have some things clarified but um yeah ultimately it's it's a big loss but yeah florida state here's the here's the here's the positive spin on this you know we've heard time and again after the travis hunter situation that nil was going to hold florida state back that you know florida state wasn't even going to get a conversation with a kid if nil is not strong enough well now this was the first visit and only visit that Emeritus Mims took. And the relationship that Mike Norvell and Alex Atkins had with him were strong enough that he was very close to committing. And I know, you know, people don't want to take solace in being second place in recruiting, but it's an encouraging sign that they're able, even despite the disadvantages with NIL uh, that, that Florida State has, that they're still able to get their foot in the door, get that vis- get that visit, and and be considered a top option for a kid. So that that's the positive spin I'd put on it. Um, and look, in recruiting, you're going to have heartbreak. You're going to have losses. It's just going to happen. I mean, Nick Saban loses on recruits. Uh, like it, it just happens. Um, and so how they bounce back is they just keep going. They keep aiming high and it's it's a numbers game you're eventually going to land enough guys that you know will will be will be great for you you just you can't be uh too beat down from something like this and you know seeing Mike Norvell and just watching him this spring you know a passionate guy doesn't seem like a guy is going to be too phased by something like this so I mean I, I expect him to go back on the trail and and just as energized as ever and hope to to land the next mems and like we said like the 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 portal there are guys emerging out of the portal every single day the whole mems thing i mean that was like a that was like a one week ordeal it wasn't like this happened over a span of a month like this can happen any day like with this current era of 
the portal. Like it, it just things move so quickly that you never know who could become available. And so I think that's the encouraging thing for Florida State is like there might be another Amarius Mims that becomes available or, or someone maybe a diet Amarius Mims, maybe someone not six seven three thirty, but but someone who's going to be a great offensive tackle for this team. Yeah, I think that that person is still out there, but it, like you said, I it, it, I'm not even sure it would be fair to to hold anyone else to the standard of being diet Amarius Mims, just because I mean. I don't know. It, 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 it's always going to be brutal because that's obviously a position that's been a struggle for a long time, a position group that, that has shown signs of progress. But Amarius Mims would have been, I mean, a game changer there as a guy who would have been your starting left tackle for two years and then probably been a first-round NFL draft pick. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it, it's brutal. But, yes, there should be plenty of options. I know that uh, there are already, I mean, the, the window's pretty tight here where there's only a couple weeks left in that in that, I think, period of time, which makes, I mean, it means there could be some more rapid recruitments here. But no doubt Florida State is uh, is, is pushing, adding another lineman. I think you uh, fans didn't see it in the spring game, obviously, and we'll talk about the spring game here in a second. But we saw early in camp, I mean, Bless Harris exceeded expectations. I think it was really, really uh, encouraging to see Maurice Smith really fighting to hold on to his spot, not just surrendering his spot or... or, or going down without kind of assuming that Caden Lyles is going to claim his spot. He was really fighting for it. And uh, Darius Washington was at, at guard a good bit before he got hurt. And uh, Robert Scott, I think, in, is a player you can build around at left tackle. I think he probably would have moved to right tackle. But I think he's proven he can be a, a, a serviceable left tackle. The problem is, I mean, the depth is a big piece of that. And so that's why it'll be interesting to see w- what they're able to add over the next uh, period of time and, and – it, it, it may not be Mims, but there will definitely be pieces that that will help that room a good bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, wouldn't you agree if if everyone was healthy, perfect world, probably one of FSU's better O lines in the last few years, right? Hundred um, percent. Adding Mims just takes it to another level. So I mean, it's not like uh, what we saw in the spring game was at its worst. That was like. That was the worst we'd seen all spring from the offensive line. We had seen a lot of encouraging signs before Darius Washington went down. So, you know, as long as they remain healthy and maybe add another piece in there, this is going to be a better offensive line that you've seen in the last few years. Uh, The Mims thing, although it's a huge loss, it it was a little bit of playing with house money because they they certainly have – improved enough over the last few years where it wasn't going to be an atrocious group as long as they remain healthy. Now, um, that's the caveat. And unfortunately that's the, I feel like that's a position group where you, you see more turnover than just about anywhere else, just because of, I mean, the constant contact, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. They've got a few guys that have, you know, suffered the injury bug uh, over the couple last couple of years, even Caden Lyles, we saw, uh, over the spring where it seemed like they were trying to kind of ease him in. And w- it wasn't like he was neck and neck with Marie Smith, like maybe we expected. But uh, but I think in the fall, once he's kind of understood the playbook more and, and things of that nature, you know, maybe he pushes a little bit harder for that spot. Uh, but, yeah, going to be interesting to see how it all plays out and uh, if they add a couple more guys in there. Uh, I think, uh, and and also, I mean, I don't think any of the true freshmen will um, maybe compete for a starting job, but 
they've got some nice pieces there. Uh, you know, I asked Norvell about Julian Armella. He, he feels really confident about him. And just having more depth, having more, like, you know, having a better third-team guy, having a better second-team guy that you could kind of bake in the oven so that, you know, two years from now, you've got a guy ready to go instead of having to really rely on the portal. I think that'll be really important for Florida State in, in the big picture uh, long term. I I agree. Let's uh let's pivot. Let's talk some uh some spring game here. Obviously, it's my first time coming back to you since uh, spring game concluded uh, a week ago today. We go last Tuesday, right before uh, the baseball teams went over Florida. Uh, I I mean, like we talked about. I think the the. Offensive product that we saw on the field in that game was unfortunate. I don't think it was unexpected. I feel like in our in our spring game preview, we kind of talked about that. We thought it might go that way because that's how practice had been going lately. But it wasn't indicative of what we saw early in camp when uh, when the unit was a little healthier, especially the uh, the the offensive line. And so it was uh, it was a bit unfortunate that uh, I mean the defense played a pretty vanilla defense, and it, the vanilla defense was kind of meant to take away the. Uh, the, the passing game that I think people wanted to see. Yeah, I mean, and even in a normal situation, when Jordan Travis doesn't have, you know, the the contact or the ability to, like, a, like, like prove that, you know, like what he could do with his legs, there it really kind of hinders the offense because that's what makes Jordan so special is what he can do with his legs. And if you're blowing the whistle and – not allowing him to really like scramble and and improvise like uh, he may normally do, it kind of like makes this offense look a lot different than it does. And then you add the factor that, hey, the offensive line's battered and oh, it's windy. I mean, honestly, like it did not surprise me at all. And you know, also have to give the defense credit; they've had a really great spring. They have definitely been way better than the the offense this spring. I'd say. And so for them to, to go into those conditions and, and probably, like, I mean, dominate the offense, I mean, that, that wasn't really a big surprise for me. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think uh, as we go forward, I think defense is going to be the strength of this team. Yes, and at the same time, I think, like we said, I think the offense will be better than we saw on, on that day for, for – a number of reasons. I know Jordan Travis. I mean, he spoke to maybe being a little frustrated with uh, some some quick whistles. Mike Norvell was pretty quick with if the if the defensive lineman kind of even got in the neighborhood, even some plays that may not have been sacks, they were kind of called sacks out of I think an abundance of caution and I think out of kind of sending a message to the quarterbacks of like you you need to be you need to be quick with your decisions and so. Uh, I know some people are also. I mean, some people are upset with the format, with it kind of not being a game. And and I, I will stand by saying I think the state of that roster, especially the state of that offensive line, I don't think you wanted to see a game. I mean, you saw what the offensive line looked like. I think splitting that in half is uh, not a recipe for success. And so I, some people I know are upset with with that, with the the bits of special team work, with the goal line work. I don't really have a problem with it because. It, Yes, it's a showcase, and it still was a showcase. But it's also, I mean, one of their 15 spring practices. And and so if you want this team to improve, I think it needs to be treated as as such. And so I don't really 
have a, a problem with that. I guess I could see some people having a problem with it if they travel out of town. But, I mean, I, I think that it wasn't, I mean, what, we're taking $10? I don't think it was such a big thing that, that yeah. anyone has should be that upset about it. But I, I guess I didn't pay money, so. I think I told you, I was like, if someone's driving 10 hours for a spring game and they're disappointed, that that's probably their fault <laughs> for driving 10 hours yeah. for a spring game. No, but what I would be mad at is the ACC network watching that. We're in the press box and we're like, they're not even showing the game. Like they're, we're, they're playing on the field and they're either at commercial or they're interviewing someone on the sideline. That was what was weird to me. So hopefully fans got to actually watch the game. Cause I, <laughs> I didn't see much of it on TV. Uh, no, but uh, yeah, I think uh, the offense, we, we did see some good flashes from, from players that um, are, are fresh faces. I mean, Trey Benson coming into the first quarter, seven carries, 77 yards, showed power, showed speed, showed quickness, fell forward. I, I mean, this, this guy runs differently than anyone else on the roster, in my opinion. And, you know, the, 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 question with him is has always been health sure but it's really also been how explosive is he still after after a major leg injury can he cut quick can he you know get past the second level or beat a safety one-on-one I mean that those are the big questions and I think what we saw was he can he he is definitely capable of making those you know 20-yard runs um and has the explosiveness to, to get to the edge. And I think that if you're a Florida State fan, like to me, that might be the biggest takeaway from the game is like this is someone who has the talent to be the number one running back in this backfield. It's just a matter of like, you know, do you have to limit this guy? Do you have to ease him in? Like how careful do you have to be with the injury? I think maybe early in the spring they had to kind of ease him in a little bit, be a little cautious. Uh but as he learns the playbook, as he gets comfortable with the offense, it's going to be really interesting to see what his role is. I mean, maybe maybe he is more of a high leverage guy, you know, in critical situations. You know, he's coming in and and uh, and, and and doing stuff for you. Uh, but it's going to be interesting. I think it's really him and and Trayshawn Ward and and Lawrence Toafili who are kind of those. Uh, main three guys, but Trey, Trey just runs a little bit differently than the others, I, I think. No, I, I think that was on, on full display Saturday. I kind of I kind of remember, I asked Alex Atkins, we talked to the, uh, the coordinators a couple days after the spring game last week, and uh, I asked him kind of like, you know, I know y'all were trying to be a little cautious with him, how encouraging was it, and I guess how excited you kind of see him like maybe with the training wheels off, and he, he kind of was like, you know, there were training wheels on him? Like he was, I, I he was... <laughs> rightfully very impressed with uh, with with what he saw from from Benson this spring I mean when you look at I mean obviously wide receivers were something that people wanted to see and and it was uh, not the best day for for that unit Johnny Wilson who has had some really nice plays this spring will have some up and down will we'll, there will probably be a couple infuriating drops this season and there will probably also be a couple really impressive touchdown catches I mean he he uses his frame well and moves well for his size and can make some really impressive contested catches and it will be a nice red zone goal line threat. 
and we'll have some drops. I mean, he had two drops in Saturday's spring game. I think Micah Pittman uh, kind of stole the show there. It looked like he picked up, I think, a shoulder injury early on, and uh, you wondered if they weren't just going to shut him down. He, what, he came back still in, in uniform after he went to the locker room for a little bit, and I think uh, the thought was probably like, well, we probably know what we have in Mike. I don't know if we need to put him back out there if he's not 100%. But he went out back out there and, and played a lot and, and showed off his physicality. I mean, for a guy in a 5'11 frame, he was kind of a bit like a bowling ball just with how he was. I mean, he was always finishing runs, falling forward. And it was uh, it, it was impressive to see, like like with Benson in that regard. Yeah, I, I love watching Micah Pittman. That, that guy's fun, not just because, you know, like you said, the bowling ball thing, but – you know, he, he, he can be a talker, and he's a funny guy. We've really enjoyed interviewing him this spring, and he's really really fit in with the team, I think. He's already very close with Jordan Travis. Been, been kind of running with the twos, and I, I expect him to, to really push for a, a starting job uh, th- this fall. But um, as far as the defense goes, um, Real dominant day we saw from from Jared Verse and the D line. I mean, it was just sack after sack with those quick quick lift quick whistles, um, and we didn't get to see Tatum Bethune. Uh, we we saw in pregame warmups. He had, he had a boot around his uh, left leg. He, he hadn't been limited all spring. That was just uh, I guess maybe a precautionary thing. Um, and he's been a huge part of this defense. One of the one of the probably most five or seven best players uh, this spring for Florida State. So to not see him was a shame, but the defense still really showed out. And I think uh, the linebacker group is a really strong unit for this team. And and fans when they get to see Tatum Bethune, they're they're really going to like what they see. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And and likewise, Jared Verse. I mean, had a. The impact you, you, you wanted to see from him. I mean, his first three series is two sacks and a, and a blocked field goal that probably would have been penalized in a real game. I think he used his hands to kind of launch over the line, which you're not supposed to do, but it speaks to his athleticism. It speaks to, I mean, he uh, the coaches talked a lot this spring about how quick a learner he is, and I think we, we saw that with how, how the strides he, he made, and I think the, the, the plays he was able to make while still not kind of having a 100% understanding of – the, the technique and his responsibilities every play and, and stuff like that. We got a snake draft, don't we? <laughs> yeah, so we should do that here. We uh, we have an interview we'll do we'll cut to after this, our interview with uh, Tom Lemming, a recruiting reporter analyst for uh, for CBS Sports, talking all things Florida State recruiting, a little Mary Smims, a little what he, his thoughts on the staff and all that. But before that, yeah, we're, we're going to put a bow on, on spring football. Me and you, Carter, we're going to do a snake draft of kind of our confidence in FSU's position groups coming out of spring. Uh, so we got a list of, what, 10 position groups here. We've got quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, offensive line, defensive ends, defensive tackles, linebackers, and to get to 10, we split up uh, cornerbacks and safeties. We split up the secondary in two. Um. I've got random.org up here. If you want to uh, call the coin, I'll let you know if you want if you get your pick of which picks or not. Okay. Uh, we're flipping a coin, you say? Yes. Okay, I'll take uh, Tails Never Fails. It's heads. Oh, I guess it fails. <laughs> it, 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 it did fail this time. Um, I will... 
I'm going to give you the number one pick, and I'll take okay. two, three. All right. Sounds good. I'm glad I get the number one pick because I feel very confident about this position group. I don't know. I don't know if you would rank this number one, but I really like where this position group is at, and that is safety. I love the safeties right now. Uh, you got a first-team all-conference player coming back in Jamie Robinson. I think Akeem Dent has played at an extremely high level this spring. He is just a playmaker, getting picks, getting pass breakups. He's all over the field. And when those two guys – I mean, I know Jamie was a little bit limited – uh, through the spring, but when he was, you know, healthy and when Akeem Dent was doing his thing, it was the best position group uh, on this team. And then you also have really good depth there, I think, in Shaheem Brown. I mean, that's a guy who I think maybe in the earlier years uh, or, or maybe in the, in the you know, three years ago would have been a starter for this team. Uh, he is a really good player. He, is, he has been all over the place. You want to see Florida State somehow get him on the field because any time that they have him out there, he's he's getting picks, he's he's in on plays, uh, he's all over the place. So I really like safety. That that's my reasoning. So that was not going to be my number one, but it is. It was among my top. It, it's a it's a good pick. I think my top three were pretty well aligned, and I felt good about getting any any two of the three. My number one, which I will take number two, is the defensive tackle room. Yeah. I think, I mean, it, 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 you, you wondered, I mean, it, it felt like an important group coming into the offseason with how much you were losing for, with Jermaine Johnson and Keir Thomas both both leaving the defensive end. It kind of puts a lot of pressure on, well, there's going to be some new guys starting at defensive end, so how much of an impact can the defensive tackle group have? And, I mean, getting Robert Cooper and Fabian Lovett to, uh, to come back was huge because, I mean, those were both, I mean, they both they were honorable mention all, all ACC last year and, and really impactful players who maybe are overshadowed a bit because they didn't have, I mean, a, a defense tackle, it makes sense. They're not going to have the production that guys like Jermaine and Keir may have, but they've both become really, really solid players. And so when you have them, I mean, when you're able to bring guys like a Malcolm Bray, like a Jared Jackson, like a, a Josh Farmer, in kind of reserve roles, rotational roles off the bench, I mean, I think that's significant. And add into it, I think their hit rate there was uh, was really good this offseason. I think I don't know how much they'll play right away just because of the state of the room, and they probably could stand and transform their bodies a little bit. But Daniel Lyons and Bishop Thomas both came in this spring and, and showed me a lot. I mean, they, they, I think, showed that when Fabian and Robert are gone going into 2023, they'll be ready for roles then. I think they're going to be year two players, maybe even a little bit year one. And and I don't know if I would have thought that coming into spring. They weren't especially highly rated recruits. So, I mean, I think the state of that room, I'm really encouraged by. I'm interested to see how kind of how deep they go there. Number three, I'm going to round out the secondary. I don't think it's a surprise. I'm going to take the cornerbacks. Obviously, they uh, – they, they lose a guy like Jarvis Brownlee, who had started a good number of games over, over the last two seasons, I think 15 over the last two years. And you would think that's significant, but you you feel pretty good about the room despite that. I mean, with Omari and Cooper, we saw this, this spring Duke really built off of a, a really strong finish to his freshman year. I think he would have played a lot more as a true freshman if he hadn't gotten hurt in the preseason and kind of missed a chunk of fall camp. That pushed back his timeline. But by the end of the year, he was starting at cornerback at the other spot, opposite Jarvis Brownlee. I mean, he had become kind of the starter. He had become a really solid coverage corner 
who's going to make plays with interceptions or make plays for others. We saw a lot this spring him kind of deflecting passes that were then intercepted by by other guys. I think he is a really promising guy to build off of. Kevin Knowles, I would say, fits in here, even though he, he played nickel cornerback last year, not outside corner. And, and he may still be a nickel this year. We'll have to see how things break down. I wonder if the uh, the, the Jarvis Brownlee situation doesn't maybe put him in contention for that other sp- spot opposite Knowles. I think those are really nice pieces. I think uh, Demory Tate, people forget about him, and, and I understand because he hasn't kind of, for being such a highly rated recruit, hasn't made a huge impact through two years, but I think he showed me some stuff this spring where he could kind of be a guy who could contend for playing time. I think they have some 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 veterans in that room who are nice pieces to have, even if, I mean, they haven't always shown it on the field, guys like Travis J, guys like uh, Jerry and Jones. And then the freshmen, I mean, they were the two highest rated freshmen in, in Sam McCall and Azaria Thomas, so maybe it shouldn't be a surprise they came in and made an impact. But they were both really impressive this spring as well. And I think there is a – like at safety, there are not enough starting spots or maybe even spots in like the rotation, playing time spots, as there are players worthy of them. And, and I think that uh, that has potentially be a really strong group for FSU. Next two for me, uh, I guess we just hate offense because I'm going to go <laughs> – I'm going to go linebacker and defensive end. Um, I, I really like – linebacker from a depth perspective and from uh, their their starting guys, Tatum Bethune and Kalen Deloach. You obviously saw what Deloach did toward the end of last year. Uh, but Bethune, I mean, he's, he's the best among the group. I mean, I just really like uh, what, what he's done. And then you've got some backups that you like and Amari Gaynor and DJ Lundy. I think uh, those guys have taken a step forward this spring. Uh Defensive end is not as deep of a group, uh, but I feel really good about the top two guys in Jared Verse and Derek McClendon. Uh, Verse is just really fast. That that's if if you were to look at one attribute that that makes him different than the others, it's how fast he is. It's he, he gets off the edge. Uh, he uh, is explosive. Uh, he just he can get around guys with ease. And he just always seems like from the very beginning of spring practice, a little quiet from him. But as it's gone on, he's gotten better and better. He's become more of a talker. Like his confidence is just through the roof. And he really brings that whole defensive line a a lot of energy with with kind of his passionate way of of carrying himself. Then Derek McClendon, too. I think this is someone who – you know, I had to wait behind a couple guys uh, his first couple of years. Um, you mentioned, you know, Keir Thomas and Jermaine Johnson, those guys. Well, now it's finally his turn, and, and he looked like a guy capable of, of really succeeding in a, in a featured role. And so uh, linebacker, defensive end, I mean, this whole defense, there, there aren't a lot of holes, I would say. Um, you know, it might be like depth or it might be like, uh, you know, you don't have like a, a ton of just super, super elite guys, but everyone is at least pretty, pretty good position group wise, I'd say. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm rounding out the defense with that. Sorry, offense, but uh, I feel really good about those position groups. So I was almost like uh, you went. I guess your top five were the five defensive groups, and I, I'm not going to say you were wrong, 
the one so the one difference I had was ahead of the defensive ends where I feel good about the starters and we'll see about the depth. I had running backs fifth. Yeah. Just ahead of the, the defensive ends. I think that's a group who you wonder what they were gonna look like coming into the offseason in in terms of I mean you lose a guy like Jay Corbin who was the leading running back the last two years and, and had, had been that kind of there's not there wasn't a go to guy, but he was I think the guy who they relied on most heavily in terms of usage, in terms of being the leader in the room, in terms of responsibility. You wondered, I mean, you've seen bits from, from Lawrence Tofilly. I think Trayshawn Ward had a pretty good season. There was the unknown in in Trey Benson. And I think what Trey Benson became this spring or showed himself to be this spring is why I, I had them as high as I did and definitely higher than I would have thought coming into the spring. I think it is a deep a, a, a deep group to be sure. I think DJ Williams, I wonder how he fits into that group because I, just, I wonder how many guys they'll play. But DJ Williams undoubtedly looked better and, and was more impressive this spring than last spring when he arrived. So, I mean, he uh, it was definitely an improvement on, on that front. And I think even a walk-on, C.J. Campbell, was was a pretty impressive big big play machine at times. I don't think he factors into the plans, but I think the fact that, I mean, even the walk-on in the room was impressing speaks to the, the depth of that room and how many op, op weapons they have that they'll be able to use in different ways. Uh, with the seventh pick, I'm going to go uh, I'm gonna go quarterback. I'm gonna stay out. We're obviously staying on offense. That's all we have left. The reason this is low as it is it's because, like with defensive end and some other spots, there are definite questions about the depth. We saw progress from Tate Rodemaker. It didn't really translate to the spring game. I think we saw A.J. Duffy look like a freshman, had his moments of brilliance, had his moments where he, he struggled, and I don't think that's surprising or worrisome necessarily. But I, I have this higher than a few other groups just because you have to feel good about what we've seen from Jordan Travis. The unfortunate caveat with Jordan will always be, until proven otherwise, can he stay healthy for an entire season? He hasn't done it yet. He's twice kind of taken over the quarterback role or kind of either split the role or took over the role mid-year and missed some time with injuries. I think, I mean, some of it's the factor of how he plays, but at the same time, I think he also has gotten better about that, and at some point it might just be a question of durability. But undeniably, when Jordan's out there, I mean that that group is is at its best. I, it is it is hard to deny. I mean, he showed growth again this spring, and and I think can be a real weapon for Florida State, especially with I think better weapons around him if he's able to be out there. And so that's why I am higher on this group than than the ones that follow. These last three were tough. I feel like I've changed my <laughs> mind a million times because. You look at wide receiver, tight end, and O line. Um, three Which position one are you groups. With? Oh, what do you say? Which one are you me with? Oh man, it's tough, man. Because because all three of them, you look and you're like, oh man. But um, I think the two I'm gonna roll with. I'm gonna say. Uh, I'll say wide receiver, and I'm gonna give offensive line a little bit of love. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a tight end just because for wide receiver, even though it's been a weak position group for Florida State for, for some time, they they took a step forward this spring. I like their transfers. And I think if Winston Wright is healthy come the fall, 
he can have a significant impact for this team. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give them some love because I think they've taken a step forward. I like Micah Pittman. I think Johnny Wilson, if he gets his act together with the whole drop thing, I I think he can he can have a a good role with this team. And I like what I've seen from Ja'Kai Douglas and Malik McLean. Offensive line, yeah, it was a bad bad end to the spring. Like, yeah, they've got injuries. Yeah, they need to add some pieces. But I'll give them credit. When they were healthy, they were better. They were they were not good, but they were not very bad. So I I think they've taken a step forward. I, I like where they're at with Robert Scott. I like Darius Washington, Dylan Gibbons. So I mean, it's it's not just a, a terrible position group. Uh, tight end, I only list them last because. I didn't really see anyone flash that much this spring from that position group. You, you maybe see a couple plays here and there from Cam McDonald and Wyatt Rector. I just didn't see anything really from that position group, if I'm being honest. And they've got a lot of scholarship guys there. I think they got seven scholarship tight ends. That is a lot. That is a lot. And uh, I just didn't really see uh, a difference maker at that position, if I'm being quite honest. Uh, I think you still, I think you still think Cam McDonald is that top guy. But if we're talking about a tight end that is, you know, going to get you 600 yards and eight touchdowns, you know, a lot of production, that kind of thing, I, I just don't think they have that in that position group right now. No, I agree. So I, I think I would have put wide receivers last. Maybe that's unfair because of, like you said, the state of the room without Winston Wright and and, and in some other ways, but. I, I, the tight ends one, I mean, I, the more I think about it, you may be right having them last and, and, and sticking me with them just because, I mean, I think you're right. Cam McDonald is, is at a certain point, is what he is. And I think he is a, a stable option, better as a receiver than a blocker, but it's gotten a little better as a blocker. And, and it will be a solid option, but I don't think it's going to be that breakout tight end. At this point, I think it's a he is what he is. I think the spring was big for seeing who was going to step up at that, that second option. I think you saw Jackson West, and you saw some of what he does, and you were like, could he be that guy? And maybe he still can, but he definitely was, was a bit too much with the drops this spring. That was It was too consistent dropping passes for him this spring for me to, to put a ton of stock in him right now. I, I think Mark Histon Douglas showed you some things. I mean, obviously they're adding another tight end over the over the summer in, in Drill Powers, but I don't think he's a guy who's expected to uh, – do a ton and, and ditto Preston Daniel had some had his moments. I would say probably the second best tight end was Wyatt Rector. And it's not an offense to Wyatt who has done who has been through a lot and has really accomplished a lot and, and is that special teams warrior, but it's not a good indictment of the state of the room if he's your second best tight end, who was a quarterback out of high school, converted tight end after coming here to be a quarterback, you know? Yeah, he's six foot two. I mean you don't want a six foot two tight end being your uh second best guy so and again they have a lot of options there it's just you know at a certain point it becomes a waste of a scholarship if if you got seven guys and none of them are really all that so that that's just my thing it may, may sound harsh but uh it, it's it's just I don't like the state of the room right now and and they need to get some difference makers there but, yeah, I, I definitely could hear the argument for wide receiver last. Uh, but uh, tight end last might be a little bit of a hot take, but I'm, I'll, I'll stick by it, uh, even though I've changed my mind 800 times. 
Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's interesting to, to evaluate where this team's at coming out of spring. We'll, uh, we'll no doubt be talking about them plenty more over the months to come. I'm sure I have plenty of other exercises talking about the team, aspects of the team, aspects of the upcoming season. But uh, for now, we're going to turn the page, obviously, to a, a pretty important summer around the program. And uh, to help kind of set the scene as a evaluation period of recruiting kicks off again, we, uh, we talked to Tom Lemming with uh, CBS Sports about all things Florida State recruiting. We're going to kick to that interview now. Welcome back. Uh, here we're, we're uh, here to interview Tom Lemming, a recruiting analyst for CBS Sports Network. Uh, the godfather of recruiting, I think it's safe to, to call him that. He's, he's been doing it longer than anybody. He's, he's currently on the road right now, was just in Las Vegas, uh, now headed to, to Salt Lake City. Always traveling, always meeting recruits. Uh, Tom, thanks for, for coming on the show. And uh, I, I guess just to kind of start, we want to talk about Marius Mims, kind of the hot topic around Florida State right now. You seem to really like this kid out of high school and, and still do. Just, I mean, how, how big of a recruit would this have been for Florida State? And, and is this a significant loss for them? It would have been a, been a great catch for them. You know, they've always had trouble with offensive linemen. They always seem to recruit every great defensive player and skilled players on offense, but they've had trouble. And he would have been the biggest thing they brought in in years. You know, I was, in Tallahassee, during the 90s, I'd go there, I think, 16 straight weeks to film a show from 91 to 99 with Gene Deckerhoff. And I was a, very familiar with the recruiting. He's a bigger name than any of the other that past 30 years offensive linemen they recruited. He's a legit 6'8 kid. And he weighed well over 300 when I saw him a year ago, but he looked, he carried it so well that you don't find too many people that are built that way. He's got great feet, great attitude. Um, I thought that would have been a massive, massive catcher at FSU. So I don't know the full circumstances. I guess he got cold feet and went back in Georgia, persuaded him. I don't know how they persuaded him, but they persuaded him to come back. Because uh, he was leaving. He was upset. I know when you get a great player like that, you almost got to promise him without promising, you know, the starting position. And uh, I'm sure... I'm just uh, guessing, but they probably did that. Since he didn't start the whole season, he may have been a little bit upset with um, unfulfilled promises. So I think Georgia was able to talk him back into it. But it have been a great catcher at this year. When, uh, I mean, there have been a few times recently where Florida State's been on the, the, the wrong side of one of these really Interesting recruitments, obviously, with this Amarius Mims situation. And then back in uh, December with uh, – with Travis Hunter and, and that whole situation with Jackson State, from kind of your perspective, I mean, is there a, a long-term impact that comes from kind of, you don't, want to, you don't want to say embarrassed, but from being right there for these transfer kids or being there and having some, some stuff go down? Obviously, Florida State's been a, an unfortunate, uh, unfortunate player in some of the early NIL era uh, recruitments like this, I guess. Is this something do you think they can quickly rebound from, or is it something, I mean, obviously – Rivals are going to hold over their heads for a while. Now they're going to be able to uh, quickly bounce back. They're Florida State. They're a powerhouse. We've got a great tradition. Um, and I just think it's a matter of, you know, it's good you're in on Travis Hunter. I couldn't understand. You know, I saw him as a sophomore and junior. He came out to all of my events. And he was committed to Florida State most of that time. And then all of a sudden, Dion was, Dion 
of all people, Florida State grad was able to talk him out of a Florida State commitment and come to Jackson State. Now, I've been to Jackson State. Dion's a great personality and does a great job of talking to players, but Jackson State's facilities are, you know, compared to Florida State and everything else, it's, they're way, way down. I don't, and I don't know if they've got the alumni to put the money into the program. I don't know, Dion, if anybody can do it for Dion, but it made no sense to me except for NIL uh, stuff uh, for Travis. They're able to fund them well. And again, I'm not completely up on this NIL stuff because, you know, Georgia does and Tennessee's doing right now. You know, uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it, it, it kind of matters to me what's right and what's wrong in college football. So I think the NCAA has to get ahead of it. They did not when it happened because of their arrogance. And I think it's kind of cost them a lot. I would always count them like 16 premier programs. And there's three in Florida, you know, Florida, Florida State, and Miami. And you can always bounce back. People said the same thing about USC. For about 20 years, they were sort of dead in the water until Pete Carroll got there. Then they were dead in the water now until uh, Lincoln got there. Uh, Texas, the same thing until Mac Brown won the national title. Alabama, for sure. I go down there and speak all the time. And, and when Bear Bryant, even Bear's last couple of years were not too good. And then when he retired, there's 20 years of nothing at Alabama except average football for them, except for the one year Gene Stallings had. But everything went back, reverted back to being an average team until Nick got there. But they are one of those programs that can turn things around. And what I was getting at is Florida State is certainly one of those 16 teams that can do that. Yes, um, you mentioned, like, just turning it around. And obviously recruiting is a, is a big way to do it. Right now, though, you look in the last three, four classes, since the 2019 class, they haven't had a top 15 class nationally. I think that's one class under Taggart and, and three with Norvell. And a lot of that does have to do with Norvell kind of hammering the transfer portal and not taking as many high school guys. Uh, but I do wonder, like, as far as getting back to that top 10, top 15, you know, high school recruiting level, is it just, is it just a matter of winning and then, you know, you're going to stop finishing second and you're going to get first or, you know, more effort? Like, what What do you see as kind of like when you have a program like Florida State where you haven't had a winning season for a, for a little bit? Um, obviously, they have everything going for them with with uh, where they're located and, and, you know, a head coach who loves recruiting and all that kind of stuff. But do you think it's just the winning that's, that's kind of keeping them from, from being at that elite level? That's the biggest thing. Winning cures all else, and uh, if you win consistently, then you are going to get the great players. That's that's the big thing. But also, you got to have assistant coaches that understand recruiting. And it's the hard work, the work ethic that comes into play. you got to stay on top of these guys now for three years. Once you identify a freshman as a power five guy, one that you'd like, you got to work at them all the years. you got to develop a relationship with that player, not only – the area coach, but the position coach, and of course the head coach. So really, it's hard work. Nick Saban has set the bar very high, and a lot of coaches are unwilling to do it. I'm not saying that's Florida State, but a lot of coaches. And I've always said this on my show, a bit tongue in cheek, but if you show me a coach as a prolific golfer, I'll show you a lousy recruiter because <laughs> recruiting has to be their hobby. It can't be golf anymore. 
and the way they're getting paid now, the fans and the alumni, everybody is um, saying you've got to put in the time and effort now. Some coaches are willing to do it. Very few at the level of Nick Saban. He's 70 years old. He's still doing it. Urban Meyer did it. I see James Franklin doing it. Um, Lincoln Riley does it. There aren't that many, though. Dan O'Sreedy was doing it, but it was mainly as coordinators. That's why right now you got to see how good Clemson's going to be. He's got a coordinator now in Virginia, another one at Oklahoma. They were they were really, I thought, uh, the catalyst for those great recruiting classes, uh, those two guys, Venables and Scott. And I do think that um, there's a question mark by And Dan was a good recruiter, but he had a real good staff. And now when once you recruit, well, Saban's proved that it's all about him because – He's usually got a turnover every two years. It's nice to stay very long. And there's been a consistency over the past 12 years for him to just do great no matter who is on his staff. So a lot of the uh, responsibility does go to the head coach. And I do think that uh, Florida State's got a good head coach. What have you heard about Mike Norvell, the recruiter? Obviously, he brings a lot of energy. He's very passionate. He was the guy who really, when recruiting started back uh, June 1st of last year, he was hosting that midnight event. It is something he commits a lot of time to. I guess, what are you hearing about how he does there, how he builds relationships there, and, and things in that regard? You know, I hear, I hear nothing but good things. I have every kid. I see every player in the country. I think I'm the only guy that does that. I drive all 48 states. I'll go to Hawaii uh, every three years. And I never, I only went to Alaska once of the 48. But uh, I have all the kids fill out questionnaires. I just saw 100 underclassmen in Southern California Saturday. Y'all came to meet me. When it comes to everything east of the Mississippi, particularly in the southern state, Florida State is all over. They're doing an excellent job of early uh, recognition, uh, early uh, evaluating, and uh, early offers. They seem to have everything in place. And like you had mentioned, once they start winning, I think everything will will cure itself. I think it's a matter of just winning 10 games a year and, proven that they can play with the big boys and once they do that, because everything else is in place for them to have you know, top ten recruiting classes. Particularly when you're in the state of Florida. I mean, you're in, you're in the number one state in the country for talent, so you don't have to go very far. And I think it's better. Maybe you could, like they did in the past in like Miami and Florida, you can look for your quarterbacks everywhere nationally and maybe the impact by star players, but for the most part, you recruit state of Florida well, you can always be a top ten recruiting uh, class. Now, you know, it, it's interesting with Billy Napier and Mario Cristobal being hired. Obviously, when you when you hire a new coach, there's always going to be kind of that um, momentum or, or early interest, intrigue from recruits. I think Florida had like 400 recruits at their spring game or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, it's um, ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It's, <laughs> it's overkill, and it's not going to do anything but hurt because you cannot give special attention to all 400, and there's going to be at least 300 of them going away, a little upset that they treated other people better than them. That is a, that's not a good – I've been doing this 43 years, and I've seen that before, and it never comes out good. So that probably plays in Florida State's favor. You're at a spring day. You invite only the guys that you know could eventually play for you. And by this time, you should know freshmen, sophomore, and juniors and, and keep it at 70 or 80 so you can give special attention to all the players. Who is who is Florida State going up against? And, and Cristobal and Napier, 
Like, how would you kind of assess those two guys? Are are they going to be big threats for what Florida State's doing? Or, or how would you say yes? Cristobal learned under Nick Saban the aggressive nonstop recruiting. Because before that, he was just all right. Now I think he's going to be very good like he was at Oregon. And I think uh, Napier's got the work ethic for sure. I think he's unproven since he really was at a school that you could compete against the Power 5 schools. But I, so I think he's unproven. But I do think he's got that uh, personality and perseverance that could make you. Now he's got one of the 16 super programs, too. So I think he could be uh, someone to reckon with. But I do think, obviously, all three could be successful like they had been for years uh, because the state is such a powerful state when it comes to producing great athletes. So it's just a matter of um, doing your own thing and don't worry about Florida or Miami. And Miami, a lot of times, they stay in South Florida. You don't see them too much up in Central or North Florida. Uh, so Florida becomes the big rival, as does Auburn when they're going up. But they're going through their own problems with their head coach right now. So they're suffering. And then now you have to worry about, always worry about Alabama and, uh, and Northern and Central Florida. And then you have to worry about Clemson and Georgia also. Those are the schools you're worried about. South Carolina, Florida State should generally beat them on any player in Florida. If they don't, it, it just means they've been outworked. So I do think uh, the natural rivalry would be Florida. Rivalry would be Florida. And then I think you worry about Alabama and Georgia and Clemson. You, uh, you talked about NIL earlier. Obviously, that's the uh... – the hot button issue of the moment. I think there's still a lot that has to be figured out, that has to be straightened out about how NIL operates. And I think a big problem right now is is how it operates differently across the country. I mean, you talked about that. And obviously when you look at the Florida schools where the, their NIL collectives can't be affiliated with the university at all and other at other places in the country, I know other schools have benefited from the school able to uh, be involved is how big of a disadvantage is it that that Florida schools have to be hands off and that stuff can't run through them? Yeah, it is going to be particularly when you're going against A and M that seems to have no rules at all. Um, I, I'm having trouble understanding if the kids are offered a million dollars for their name and uh, image and likeness, but don't they have to do something for that? Like if you're doing a commercial or pose for picture, a lot of stuff not just be handed money. So I do think there's a lot of rules that have to be straightened out. The NCAA drags their feet on everything, so it's hard to tell. They, I was with um, having lunch with John Gruden um, about a month and a half ago in Tampa. We were talking about it. And he, he said the same thing I did, that if the NCAA had gotten ahead of this, uh, instead of yeah, their hubris and arrogance before that, when, it, when they didn't want to give anybody any money, if they set rules and everything else, it be settled by now. But now, it's like when I started in this business back in the late 70s, when you talked about the uh, uh, Southwest Conference, it was like the Wild West. Everybody was doing everything. They're all turning each other in, but there was so much going on. But I traveled through Texas, and my head was spinning. And it seems to be the same way now. All players are going places you wouldn't think they'd be going. You get an inner-city kid from Philadelphia going all the way to College Station. Texas, completely out of his element and out of his uh, neighborhood, then you got to wonder, boy, what's going on? Like, what is actually given to these guys? Because everything right now, no one knows how much they're getting. No one knows what they're doing to get that. And I think um, you're right with the rules in the state of Florida, but them not being able to do what the other powerhouse schools are doing could eventually hurt them. But I do think 
it'll all be uh, figured out in the next couple of years. Uh, especially, like I said, you got Lane Kiff, Kiffin complaining about A&M. And I do think that uh, the other coaches raised their voices, which they are. There's a lot of concern nationally that there's going to be a handful of schools uh, that have powerful alumni giving money to a lot of the top players. And um, the cheating will be found out once. But you got 85 scholarship players on a team, and you got maybe 15 or 20 getting all the money. Jealousy will set in, and you'll see another 50 players on actually telling people what's going on. It's going to take a few years, but that'll definitely happen because that's normally how the NCAA gets a lot of their info from disgruntled players. So it'll be fun to watch, and hopefully it'll get settled so college football can actually settle itself down and get back to the great sport and, and, uh, that it is. You know, the, the transfer portal, another another hot topic, you know, the one-time the one time transfer, it's something that Mel Tucker at Michigan State used to really completely turn them around. And it's something that Mike Norvell is trying to use. Because when, when he came to Florida State, the, the roster was just in, in shambles. They really had to turn it around and re- replace some of those guys. With, with guys that can play right away. So he really hammered that transfer portal. He's getting 10 plus guys every year. And, and because of that, he hasn't been able to invest as much in high school recruiting. You know, he's only able to get 14 or so guys each class, um, which I think is the right thing that he's doing that. But you begin to wonder, like, at what point do you begin to shift to, you know, I, I, he, you would think he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to take 10, 12 transfers every year. But at what point, Tom, do you shift to where you start to go, okay, <clears throat> the roster is good enough. We've won this many games. We've got this much talent at these positions. What does it have to look like for Florida State to begin to shift to where they're going mostly high school recruiting? Let's, let's hope soon because – it reminds me of 40 years ago when the junior colleges were so strong. You had Illinois and Kansas State, Michigan State, a lot of schools taking a, a, a ton of um, uh, junior college players and it was screwing up their high school recruiting and they had trouble getting back to it. So they had to stick with it the entire time. But in the long run, it hurts you. When you take that many transfers and uh, you're going to get them, uh, it really does. High school players are hesitant to go to your program because the other schools are going to use that against you. Michigan State's seeing it now. They had great success with the transfer portal last year. But now a lot of the high school kids, especially in Michigan, they're hesitant to go over to East Lansing because of that. They can, they're going to keep taking some of these guys and uh, we're not going to get a chance to play because they've got experience over them. They're in age and experience. They want to come in and into sort of a settled program. So I think no, uh, Michigan State is taking more high school players this year. They're putting more effort into the high school. I think it was a one-and-done thing for them. They are still going after some transfers, but not nearly as many as they did. I think if you do it for one year, it's okay. But if you show a consistent um, move towards the transfer portal, that's going to really screw up your program in the long run. So hopefully uh, – and, you know, you can always go for one or two or three guys a year that – where you have some need at one position, but once you start bringing in nine, 10, 11 guys, the high school kids are going to be backing off and you it's going to really affect your uh, high school recruiting and your long range plans. Um, yeah. I, 
we saw we saw a decent amount of of FSU spring practice. I think we got to watch thirteen of the fifteen practices in in in, in total. And I think one of the early returns was definitely a. How impressive and the good solid hit rate on FSU's high school defensive signees, the signees they brought on the, brought in on the defensive side of the ball. When you look at, I mean, guys like Azaria Thomas, who was a late addition, Sam McCall, who was kind of the, the long mainstay of the class who stayed on after Travis Hunter left, and guys like Omar Graham and guys like Bishop Thomas, I guess. What, what was your take on those guys seeing them as high school recruits? Did you think they were guys who come in and make an impact right away? I didn't. Well, McCall, yes. I been my his school a couple of times. Really liked him. I thought he was an impact player. And all the other guys are good athletes, so it just determined you know, if there was a need for them right away. And they did have the athletic ability to play. I wasn't sure about the maturity level yet, but if they're doing well, then that's great. But high school players, it's hit and miss. If they're great athletes, they're eventually going to wind up playing. It just comes out to the maturity level of these guys and how far along they are and I think Florida State did a very good job of evaluating, knowing that some of these guys can come in and play right away. You don't have to go by the rankings. As you know, I started these five-star rankings back 30 years ago, and uh, I based them on hotels. <laughs> but now they're based on how many offers you have. That's why you don't see the Internet sites um, offering or uh, giving five stars to a guy who has no offers yet. Because they wait, wait till the offers come along. If Alabama offers you an Ohio State Clemson, good chance you're going to be a five-star player. Uh, you know, if you got offers from Indiana or Wake Forest or Texas Tech, good chances you're going to be a three-star player. So it's all based on offers, which means nothing. Because if you look at the guys getting drafted now, a good number of them were uh, no more than two or three-star players. Tom, I want to ask you about. AJ Duffy, I know he's someone that, that people are really interested in and, and also the, the, just the quarterback room in general. I think it's become sort of a, a hot topic that they've got three scholarship quarterbacks, Jordan Travis, Tate Rodemaker, and now AJ Duffy. And the, the thought has been, well, well, maybe they need to add another guy in there. When Tate Rodemaker's played, he hasn't shown much. He's, he's shown improvement this spring, but but when he's played in actual games, he hasn't shown much. A.J. Duffy has been a little bit raw, but um, you can see some potential there. And then Jordan Travis has been kind of the guy that's been around the program for a while. He, he's, he's shown some good flashes, but the durability has been the concern. Um, in today's college football, is it just like with the transfer portal and everything, is it hard to have more than three scholarship quarterbacks and, and – a couple guys that you can rely on or, you know, Florida State be adding a transfer in there and then just overall what, what were your kind of impressions of A.J. Duffy at a, at a high school? Yeah, you are right about the transfer portal. A lot of times it is tough to keep more than three because guys want to play at a quarterback. There's a, there's only, just like the NFL draft now, everybody just, I think the last five years has been a quarterback going first overall. They just, that's the position that could win you the game. That's the most important position on the field. Uh, Tate, his dad's a high school coach. I spent time with him and his dad watching film uh, when he was a high school junior. I liked him. He was more of an efficient coach on the field. Not a super talented kid, but an efficient quarterback who's been well-trained since his young years. And then um, AJ was very good in California when I saw him. And then he leveled off at IMG, which most guys do. Once they go to IMG, they kind of level off because 
and a lot of good players there. Not all of them are playing the entire time. And I don't see much improvement with kids once they get to IMG. I, you know, most of them IMG recruits them as all-stars. So they're already all-stars coming into the program. I see very few players actually develop there, in my opinion. So I do think that AJ kind of leveled off at IMG, and I think now it's up to Florida State to you know, push him progressively towards being a big-time quarterback. He certainly has that ability. He showed it out in California. Looking uh, looking to the future now, obviously it's it's very early, but the uh, 2023 and especially 2024 class, Florida State's off to uh, – a pretty strong start in in recruiting. Obviously, they got quarterbacks from both those next two classes, and a number of other guys on board. Guys like uh, Keith Sampson, Lamont Green, Chris Parsons, obviously the 2023 quarterback, and Cameron Davis in the uh, 2024 class. I guess just what are your thoughts on some of those guys that Florida State has on board, and kind of their their head start to those next few classes? I've known Lamont Green for a long time. His dad actually was my national player of the year. And- uh, Gene Dickeroff and I brought him to Disney World when we did that big show for uh, Reebok on ESPN. And I thought that, uh, you know, Lamont was great. And obviously he went to Florida State, National Player of the Year as a linebacker. And his son is just like him, big, very athletic, outstanding talent. I saw Chris Parkinson play at Red Oak, Texas, before he transferred over to the national area at Brentwood. And I thought, Carson, he's not real big. But he's very efficient. He's really good in uh, Texas. So good that I went and saw him as a freshman. I really liked him a lot. I thought he was going to be a guy progressively that could be an outstanding quarterback. He needs to be developed, but he's a very good smallish type athlete and a very good player. And Keith Sampson, I had seen Keith uh, in North Carolina. He came to the last couple of uh, get-togethers the last two years, and I actually liked him a lot. Yeah, because he's you know he's got that quick feet. He's got he's a violent hand type guy, and I just thought he was a big time interior defensive lineman. And you know North Carolina last year was loaded with defensive line type prospects, and I thought the Shaw kid that uh, Travis Shaw in North Carolina, and then um, Pete Sampson were the two best. Tom, you, you mentioned Gene. I I think I was talking to you a week ago, and. Uh, <laughs> I kind of broke the news to you about, about Gene Deckerhoff, uh, announcing his, his retirement. I know, I know you, uh, knew him quite well. So just what was your relationship like with him and, and just how, like you mentioned you, you would listen to him on the radio when you're on road trips. I'd love, love for you to share some stories and, and just what he kind of meant to you. Well, back in 1991, Jim McNeil who still lives in Tallahassee. He was a producer. He was going to do a national show. They asked me to be the recruiting analyst every week, along with the host, uh, Gene Deckeroff. So we were the two co-hosts from 91 to 99. And we filmed in Tallahassee. Every show except our last show would be filmed at Disney World, which we flew Lamont Green and uh, you know, Tony Gonzalez, Orlando Pace, Charles Woodson, Ricky Williams. All these great players come to Disney World in those years of the 90s. And Gene was a wonderful guy. You know, he's the best play-by-play guy in the country, without a doubt. Hopefully he'll stay with the Tampa Bay Bucks, but he was, he's a Florida grad, but he was, uh, uh, every Florida State grad loves him. He was tremendous. When I, I go around the country, I would always turn on Florida State only because of Gene Deckerhoff with his voice and his enthusiasm and, uh, just professionalism. He was fantastic. He should be in, I don't know if he is, he should be, if he isn't in the Radio Hall of Fame. He's that good. 
and it's gonna he's gonna be missed by Florida State. He was always a joy to be with. I, you know, I didn't like flying from Chicago to Tallahassee because there's no direct flights. I had always first couple of years Chicago to Atlanta. Then we had to go to uh, U.S. Air sponsored us after Delta did. It was Chicago to Charlotte, and there were no jet service into Tallahassee. I could see the cars below us when I'm in those prop lights flying from, uh, and it was kind of tough. Every Monday we did it during the fall. But you know what? When you get in there and Jim McNeil and Gene Decker were just wonderful people, and all the people that worked with us there, I loved it. So to me it was a great experience you know, doing a national show in Tallahassee. So I got to know guys like Ronnie Cottrell, who's a recruiting coordinator, and uh, Bobby Bob and all the uh, guys in Florida State at that time. And uh, it was the premier program in the country, really. You had Steve Spurrier over at Florida at that time. And yet, you know, you had other guys doing well. However, it was really Miami and Florida State and Florida where that was the center of college football back in the 90s. Obviously, uh, recruiting never really sleeps. And uh, it's always constant in one way or another. Obviously, Florida State just had a lot of kids on campus visiting for for the spring. And now that kind of turns to the evaluation period. I guess what is the key as Florida State coaches hit the road here today on Tuesday f- to uh, to coaches maximizing that that evaluation period? You know what I really believe now, because I'm sure all the juniors and seniors to be have been evaluated. The key is to go to every program and find out what great freshmen and sophomores you have, and then develop relationships that early because that's what a lot of schools are doing now. They're developing relationships for two or three, possibly sometimes even four years. Uh, and, and Saban had been doing that for a while. Everybody else is somewhat catching up to it. But that's the key now. Obviously, you got to keep working on the juniors and seniors, see how they're progressing, and, and also sort of get a handle on what they're doing. But also, I think it's, it's the evaluating skills of these assistant coaches that are on the road to check out and make sure you offer. As soon as you see a great freshman, offer them. Because if you don't, what I know is talking to the kids. Whenever I ask them, I do it with every kid now. I do a five to ten second. Tell me your name, high school, and favorite schools. And almost always, they'll mention their favorites right in the beginning. And then they'll forget the other ones. And then I ask them if they know any assistant. Who are the top assistant coaches that are recruiting you? If they don't remember a name from a school, that means they're not going to that school. They get very close to these guys that have worked them for two or three years and uh, that's the key to recruiting now. Uh, when you're among the top 16, and like I said, you know, out west, it's really just right now USC. Then you got Texas, Texas A&M, and Texas. Then uh, you got uh, in the south, Notre Dame, Michigan, and Ohio State in the Midwest, Penn State, the East. And then all the rest of them really are in the south. The three in Florida, you got Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Auburn. The Super 16 schools, Tennessee, and um, LSU, and you're one of those 16, it all comes down to evaluation and then the persistence of the assistant coaches. If you got assistant coaches on the team that are already have their eye towards the NFL or maybe moving up as coordinators at other schools, they're not going to put a lot of time into recruiting. They're going to put a lot of time into PR. So then they work with the Internet people who want to give them publicity because each Internet guy sponsors one show. <laughs> so, I mean, one school. So... They get close in the coach. I've seen that up here in the Midwest a lot where the internet guys are very close to the uh, coaches. A lot of times who aren't doing a good job, but they do a great job of promoting themselves. And that's what uh, you see a lot of the internet. But believe me, it comes down to 
the hardworking assistant coaches who I know around the country, and I know the BS guys, and I know the really truthful, good recruiters. And a lot of times the guys get a lot of the publicity. They're not the great recruiters. They're just great at getting themselves publicity. Well, Tom, I think that's uh, all we have for you today. We we really appreciate uh, having you on, talking about recruiting, and uh, like Kurt said, recruiting never never sleeps. So uh, enjoy the rest of your trip, and, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Well, one thing, one more thing too. I think, guys, I do believe that the arrow is pointing north for Florida State. But all my travels, they seem to be a school that's starting to gather momentum. So I think Seminole fans should be very happy. And I just Give them another two years, I think you're going to see marked improvement not only in the wins and losses, but also when it comes to landing four and five-star players. All right, Tom. Appreciate it, man, and uh, safe travels. Take care, guys. And we're back. Uh, Thanks to Tom Lang for uh, taking the time, laying the groundwork in – the state of some Florida State recruiting, some some larger picture recruiting. I had a, a lot of insight from a guy who uh, has been everywhere, quite literally, in the world of recruiting. So I appreciate him taking the time. Um, we'll talk a little, uh, a little diamond, a little around here at the end, a little baseball, a little softball. Obviously, uh, this past week was a, a pretty big one for the Florida State baseball team. It definitely felt like there was uh, – some growing frustration from the fan base about the team. I think there was some growing frustration. I, I think not even maybe frustration, but self-pity going on within the team. Mike Martin said coming into the week and all Florida state does after going two and six the last two weeks is comes out and goes four to against four or against in four games against ranked teams. I mean, it's a, it was an impressive week beating Florida. Obviously Florida state now two and zero at home against Florida under Mike Martin jr. And then a, a, a sweep of Louisville, a really, a dominant week when Florida State really that's exactly what they needed yeah and it was a huge huge week for the offense I mean there there had been games where like you know Alex Terrell had gone 0 for 22 in one stretch Jordan Carrion went 2 for 27 in one stretch uh you had a couple players who were, were really struggling in the offense collectively I mean you know they put up Zero in their in their finale against Georgia Tech. Um, you had the Notre Dame series where they didn't score a single run in twelve innings. They had lost five out of seven games, or, or not five out of seven, seven out of nine, yeah. uh, which includes a, a five game losing streak. So this was like a lowest of the lows that they could have felt, and you know instead of kind of burying their heads, they they came out and and came out firing. I mean. 32 runs in that four-game stretch. Uh, I think seven homers as well. Alex Terrell really came alive. Jordan Carrion really came alive. Uh, some guys that had been struggling really started to come on. And um, this is the kind of time to do it. You know, you're getting toward the end of the season. Uh, you know, you're about a month away from uh, postseason. I guess maybe a month and a half away, I guess. Uh, but you know, if you're if you're gonna struggle, yeah, maybe do that in the middle of the season. That's what kind of Alex Terrell had, had told me. If there was a time for him to struggle, he'd, he'd want it to be in March and early April. So, uh, some good signs from them. Uh, saw the, the, a lot of talk about the the D one baseball uh, not not ranking them. I'm curious your thoughts on that, Kurt. But uh, 
Yeah, very strong week for, for Florida State baseball. Uh, it's the whole D one thing's interesting. A friend of the podcast, Brett Nevitt, was uh, leading that charge yesterday of kind of calling out the uh, two facedness of some of how they approached te- some teams having bad weeks, not being not being punished that hard. If Florida State punished real hard for a few bad weeks and now not being rewarded for it all for a really good week, where they dropped out the poll last week and they're still out this week. And Louisville, I think, got swept by Florida State and dropped seven spots from from nine to sixteen. I don't think they are too high on Florida State as a whole team. I think, obviously, they're high on Florida State's pitching staff. But it seems clear that uh, I think they're not entirely buying the Seminoles because something like that, I mean, it's kind of entirely up to the, the, the writers there, you know? But I don't know. I mean, my thing is, it, the interesting question going forward is kind of what's the real Florida State? It's obviously something between the two extremes we've seen recently. They're not neither as bad overall as they've been, they were during that bad stretch nor are they as good as they were this week. That was kind of the best version of yeah. them. But you talked about the lineup. It feels like the lineup is going to determine where that baseline is and what this team can accomplish. Because the pitching, I mean, you're not always going to get what you got last week from Parker Messick. But Parker Messick is a reliable Friday starter. And Bryce Hubbard has been a solid, very good Saturday starter. Obviously, there's a change in the Sunday spot this year, or this week, after kind of a stability there with Carson Montgomery replacing Ross Dunn who it seemed like had been going through some kind of starter fatigue. I know his uh, for the second straight start, his uh, speed was down a little early in the early going, and that's uh, just indicative of a guy who maybe hasn't thrown that much that heavily in terms in a while or if ever. So a switch there, but still, I mean, the fact that Florida State has such an established midweek starter in Carson Montgomery who can slide into that role works out well for him. And, I mean, the pitching staff remains a major strength. It, it feels like what the offense does is going to determine uh, the consistency level. Yeah, I would agree on that part. I also do think that third pitcher will be a huge part in it too because, uh, you know, I, I uh, something that Mike Martin Jr. talked about after the game I thought was interesting. He said, you know, our message to Ross Dunn has been, you know, we can't go to Omaha without you. Without you playing at the level that you should be playing, this is how – FSU gets gets to Omaha and you know Carson Montgomery I think is someone who has shown a lot of flashes he obviously came to Florida State uh with a lot a lot of hype uh uh passed on turning to turning pro to to come to Florida State and has really uh uh done a good job as the midweek starter and has earned enough to to be that Sunday role but but now what what happens right like does Montgomery thrive in that uh, kind of role that that uh, that mid or that that weekend spot where you're facing you know better competition and then also you know what happens with Ross Dunn does he move to a reliever role is he the closer like wh- what happens there I think that will be kind of uh, worth worth following because I think with just how strong Mark Parker and and Bryce are as your one two punch. If you can get that third and fourth arm solidified, uh, that that's the difference from being you know a team that could maybe make the super regional to a team that can potentially make the the college world series. So yeah, I agree with you. A lot of it does have to do with hitting. They can be streaky at times, but also the the pitching uh, with with Ross and Carson, I think, will be huge as well. Yeah, Carson's interesting. I mean, no doubt he's been up to the 
task pretty consistently this year. He's been a real solid midweek starter. But this will be kind of his second time trying out the weekend rotation. They tried to throw him right into there as a true freshman in the Sunday spot, and uh, he wasn't ready for it. Maybe whether that was emotionally, whether that was maturity-wise, whether that was mentality, whatever it was, there's something about it where he was not ready for the moment yet. He's kind of been been up to the task in the midweek role that he's held for the majority of his time here, and he's going to get another shot in the uh, in the in the weekend rotation this week against. Uh, a Clemson team that I think is talented and has dramatically underachieved this year. But, I mean, you talked about it. Even before that, they've got Georgia Southern, which is, I mean, a top-10 RPI team. That it, it is, yeah. It's a shock. I know they're fresh off a sweep of Georgia State. I think they're seventh in RPI. So midweek games are often like a – you don't want to lose them because they can hurt your RPI a little bit. But this is a midweek game that if Florida State managed to win Wednesday night, it would be a boost to their RPI. Yeah, as it stands, you know, we, we saw a couple weeks ago uh, the projections were, were seeing Florida State as a two-seed in the Athens Regional. If they put together some more series wins, I mean, y- you look at it, they, they won their first six, they get swept at Notre Dame, they lose the rubber match at, at Georgia Tech, and then now they, they've won uh, against Louisville, which was their second sweep of the year. You know, now it's kind of like, okay, if they can just manage to win a couple more, they've got Clemson, you know, they, they've got to win that series. They've got TCU and Boston College and Miami and North Carolina left. If you can win uh, those series, I mean, you don't even have to sweep all of those. Um, it can put them in a position where they can host a, a regional. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a really important stretch for, for Florida State if they want to host that regional and, and get back to, to being not just ranked, but being in a, in a position to host. It's crazy to think about that. I mean, FSU baseball, which was for years kind of a, a hosting staple, hasn't hosted a regional since 2018. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's crazy that the last three years, well, so I say that, 2020 doesn't count, but the last two years that it's made a tournament, they got sent to Georgia in 2019 when they started their miracle run. And they got sent to Oxford Ole Miss last year. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they're right there. And that really, you couldn't say that last week. They needed a week like this to kind of make up the ground, and they have. And, and now you just have to see, I mean, are they able to carry that momentum forward? Because the hosting opportunity is right there, especially with the schedule that's ahead. But they have to uh, not keep having weeks like they just had, but keep having winning weeks, keep winning series, like you said. And look, they, they've got the opportunities, too, with Georgia Southern being a top-10 RPI team. You got a, a series at Miami. You know, another game against Florida. You got another midweek against Florida. TCU is a ranked team. I mean, there are a lot of really good teams left on this schedule where, you know, you win the TCU series, maybe you beat Florida, and maybe you win a, a couple at Miami or, or, or at home against Miami, then – you know, you're in business to, to host. So um, there will be opportunities. Uh, I think, like we said, Carson Montgomery is going to be a big part of that. Ross Dunn's going to be a big part of that. And then how how hot can this team be? When I talked to Alex Corral, Alex Terrell last week, he made it seem like it was just almost a fluke, like his slump. He said, you know, that his batting stance was he, – he was just standing too far away from the plate. And he's like, I've, I've never done this before. It was like the most weird thing. I just randomly caught it while I was watching film. And as soon as he fixed that, you know, he has three homers and three straight games. 
He's got uh, four homers in five games, uh, and he's back to, to being the, the slugger that he is. Um, and so if he can continue that consistency, uh, you know, you get James Tibbs back, you get these guys uh, back to playing where they were, Jordan Carrion, he's 10 for his last 21. Uh, if they can continue that, then, then yeah, they're going to be a, a very dangerous team going forward. Uh, switching over to the softball world, we're going from a team that's kind of on the hosting bubble, I would say right now, to a team that's not on the hosting bubble, and because they're comfortably going to host the postseason, that's, I mean, the Florida State softball team consensus top five. They were consensus kind of top two. It's fallen off a, a, a little bit just because, I mean, you look at the last two weekends, the home series against Virginia Tech and then the road series at North Carolina – Florida State 3-3 three and three in those series. They they lose two to Virginia Tech at home in, in the highest-ranked ACC series ever. And then they, uh, they they turn around and lose one at North Carolina. And it's not a horrendous loss, but North Carolina was solidly under 500 in ACC play. Uh, after such a good start where they're, what, I think they were 36-2 going into the Virginia Tech series, it's felt like, and, and again, this is picking nits for a very good team, it's felt like like consistency issues have have snuck in a bit i don't know is that a concern at all for you no i mean look this is a team that's that's been there done that you know if this was a uh a team without veterans like you know cat sandercock cindy share cindy cheryl um you know if this is a team that hadn't been to a college world series uh maybe i'd be concerned but they've they've done this before they were they were all the way to the championship last year. They know what it takes. And, you know, I talked to the cat Sandercock last week after the, the Virginia Tech loss, and she said, you know, sometimes win, uh, losing, it sounds very strange, but sometimes losing can be a good thing because w- when you win so much like this program has the last few years, you get kind of used to it. You, you don't really focus on your mistakes as much. You know, a win is a win, as they say. Well, when you when you lose, it can help you kind of regroup and, and and be kind of inspired, and also just look at the tape and see what what you need to improve on. And with this team, you know, right now they're sitting third in the ACC standings after you know Duke's won eleven straight, Virginia Tech's had the the season that they've had. Um, so I think the way that they've scheduled just such a brutal schedule, not, not just with a the 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 first you know tournament uh, that they had, but also uh, you know having Clemson and or, or not Clemson having a, a, a Oklahoma State and, and other schools on the schedule, Florida, like they're really battle tested. So you know it may not show up in a way that that you'd like toward the end of this season with with a couple losses here and there, but at the end of the day, when when tournament play uh, starts. They're going to be ready. They're going to know how to handle these situations. Being, you know, on the road at Florida and going to ten innings, that's going to prepare them for, you know, those kind of high leverage situations uh, going forward. I think. No, I I agree with you. I think. I mean, you, I'm sure no one on the team would fess up to it, but you don't worry, especially with the veterans that haven't been there for a bit of like complacency of like the like. We're just we're ready for the postseason type, you know. I mean, this is it's a pretty it's a polished team, like you know. I mean, when they're hitting, they can hit with the best of them. When Catherine Sandercock's on, she can pitch with the best of them. I mean, they they're 
clean fielding. They they for the most part played incredibly high level. So I'm not I'm not especially uh, concerned about it either. I mean they they have a stretch here where it may not be the postseason yet, but it's probably going to feel like it the next few weekends at Joey and Graff Field with uh, Clemson, a top like 15 to 20 ranked team coming in this weekend. Oklahoma State, a top just outside the top five team coming in next weekend. Florida coming in the Tuesday after that. It's a uh, it's quite the time. It's and, and good for the sport. I mean, I know Lonnie Almeida has been talking about the growth of sport for years. I think six of FSU's seven next games are going to be nationally broadcast. I think a couple on the FCC network, a couple of ESPNUs, I think an ESPN2. It's, uh, I mean, they're getting the attention they deserve. And honestly, the sport's getting the attention it deserves because it's, it is an entertaining game. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's good for me because I can never figure out how to work ACC Network Extra. So <laughs> have some games yeah, on ESPN2 and ACC Network, ESPNU. I mean, that that's going to be really good for the sport. And, you know, Senior Day is coming up uh, this Saturday. I mean, it's kind of crazy how, how fast the, the season's really gone, but uh, really coming to an end here soon. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it is crazy to think about. We're less than a month out from ACC tournament starting, and right after that will be regional, super regional, I think all of which pending a real collapse, which I don't think either of us see coming. All of us is going to be here in town in Tallahassee, the whole entire path to Oklahoma City. So uh, it should be interesting. I mean, it's, uh, it's that time of year where uh, the cream rises to the top, and I think this Florida State team has shown – a good bit this year that it deserves to be in that conversation and i i will say I got, i've got to take my victory lap now because i i saw it over the weekend the oklahoma softball team finally lost the uh they're team trash is an unbelievable team. they were 40 and oh they were run ruling people an unbelievable clip i'm not anybody even saying they're a bad team but i did take a little solace after oklahoma softball twitter coming after me knowing that that team's not going to go undefeated <laughs> Because apparently Oklahoma softball Twitter is vicious. I also learned, completely unrelated, I also was reminded about how vicious UCF Twitter can be yesterday. Oh, yeah. Uh, I decided to make a joke about their rings, and some of the people did not take so kindly to that. And the uh, the little brother syndrome is a little real. Yeah, you know, I, I'm an outsider. I, You know, again, I'm from Texas, and... I just remember seeing the whole UCF national championship thing, and I let them have their fun. But uh, you could definitely catch a whiff of what was going on with that fan base there. <laughs> so. It's uh, always fun having the uh, the the massive Twitter account, not massive, the bigger uh, having a larger follower count and having more exposure. It's because more people find your stuff, and you kind of have to be uh, fine with that. And I've I've dealt with it a few times this year but that's the fun part of it is the uh the trolling and all right yeah well if OU softball wins I expect their like wins at all I expect their Twitter account to to give you a shout out so <laughs> hey hey I I would uh I, w- I would take that um but yeah we're uh I think we've we've covered a lot of ground today from from the football from the Amarius Mims to the recruiting to the uh baseball and softball both of which are uh, i mean it's it's reaching that time of the year and so we uh, we appreciate you for listening we appreciate you if you're a subscriber of the podcast subscriber to the Tallahassee democrat if you uh follow us on social media it's greatly appreciated um give us reviews for the podcast is also greatly appreciated it helps out a good bit we uh appreciate you for listening for uh carter i'm kurt talk to you next time